Tonight we finish up our study of the tabernacle furniture. I preached all the way through the entire book of Genesis and through Exodus all the way up to chapter 20, including the Ten Commandments, and then we've been taking a break from going consecutively through the text. Uh, So rather than continuing with Exodus 21 and 22 and so forth, what we've been doing is we've been systematically studying the Old Covenant. So we broke down uh, the different types of biblical law, moral, civil, ceremonial. And then we have been studying the physical tabernacle. And we've been focusing in on studying the furniture in the tabernacle. And God willing, we will finish up our study of the physical tabernacle um, next week. Looking at the last piece of furniture tonight, and then just a summary message on the physical tabernacle. And then, God willing, we'll proceed to the priests, their garments, their work, and the liturgical calendar. That is the system of sacrifices and what you're supposed to do in which day and which month, and so on and so forth. Before we get to our much-anticipated study about the governance of Israel, and the similarities and the dissimilarities that God intends between the way that ancient Israel was governed under the Old Covenant and the way that modern nation-states are to be governed. Then, if God permits, around that time we will leave Sinai, so to speak, and we will pick up our narrative with the rest of the wilderness wanderings and eventually the conquest of Canaan and so on and so forth. And we'll kind of go chronologically from there. All of that will take several months, uh, most likely, but I want to lay out my tentative plan for how we will proceed from here. Tonight, though, as I said, we finish up our study of the tabernacle furniture, and I have a confession to make. I missed one. I missed a piece of furniture in the holy place, and I caught my mistake soon after we had left the holy place in our study and gone to the outer court. But rather than introduce the confusion of going back and forth between the outer court and the holy place a couple of times, I figured I'd just finish off, leave this one for the end, and then circle back. So by way of review, the tabernacle is basically a rectangular tent-type structure, and in the westernmost section is the most holy place. And what's in the most holy place? The Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top. The easternmost section of the tabernacle where you enter the door is eastward facing so you come in moving westward into the tabernacle and there's the outer court and what is in the outer court the bronze basin and the bronze altar so first thing you come to the altar and then moving towards the holy place there's a basin at which the priests have to wash as they go from the outer court into the holy place or back from the holy place out into the other court. Then in the most, or pardon me, in the holy place, which is in between the most holy place and the outer court, so it's the middle section. In the holy place, there is the table of the bread of the presence and the lampstand and the item that we are studying tonight, which I missed, and my apologies for that. Even I'm learning as we go, and this is one of the benefits of biblical exposition is that as we study the text uh, it benefits me as well as it benefits you and I'm learning a lot about the old covenant as we go I feel actually way clearer 
on the Old Covenant after the last several months of study uh, myself. And um, so it's a benefit. I missed the altar of incense. So let's study that tonight. And let's begin with a basic description of the altar and its function. The altar of incense was about a foot and a half square as viewed from above. So if, if you were looking down from a bird's eye view, it would basically be about 18 inches square as viewed from above. And it was about three feet tall. So just, if we say roughly, the size of this pulpit. And it bore some similarity to the other tabernacle items. As Douglas Stewart describes, quote, like the ark, and more particularly like the table, it was made of acacia wood surfaced with gold, but like the bronze altar, it had rounded corner protuberances extended upward from its top, known as horns. In a manner akin to the table, it had a decorative molding of gold around the edge of its top, giving it something of a lip that would help hold incense on the surface. And it had gold rings through which poles of acacia wood overlaid with gold could be inserted to carry it. And this altar of incense was placed, as Exodus 30 and verse 6 says, in front of the veil that is above the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the Testimony. This means that if you were walking eastward, or pardon me, walking westward through the, the entrance to the tabernacle into the outer court, you see the... Uh, altar, the bronze altar in front of you, you walk past that and you pass the bronze basin and you walk into the holy place, you see the table for the bread of the presence and the lampstand, one on either side of the room, and directly in the middle, you see the altar of incense. But the altar of incense was westward, right up against, or right close to the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Every day, twice a day, at morning and evening, the high priest was to burn the prescribed incense on it. This timing coincided with the offering of the standard morning and evening sacrifices on the bronze altar, which was in the outer court. And so the animals would be sacrificed and the incense would be burned at the same time, morning and evening, day by day. Know that the altar of incense was not an altar for animal sacrifices, as we just read in the text, Exodus 31-10. But that blood was to be applied to it on the Day of Atonement once per year. Now, that's a basic description of it and its function and its place in the system. What does the altar of incense represent? Beyond any reasonable doubt, the altar of incense represents the prayers of God's people as an integral part of His worship. This interpretation rises naturally from the several connections that the Scripture makes between incense and prayer. The Scripture regularly uses incense as a symbol for prayer. So it is most natural to apply the same symbolism here. And if we didn't apply that symbolism here, then on what basis would we claim that the incense represents anything else? In other words, if we jettison the way that the Bible uses incense symbolically elsewhere, 
On what basis are we going to come up with another symbolism? Therefore, it's most natural to assume that the symbolism here is consistent with what we see in the rest of Scripture, that the incense represents prayer. Listen to the following verses. In Psalm 141 and verse 2, the psalmist says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, we read, The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Revelation 8 doesn't equate the incense with the prayers of the saints in as explicit a manner as Revelation 5 does. However, they're still presented together in Revelation 8. Listen to verses 3 and 4. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And we see the same sort of correlation where they're not equated, but they're there together in Luke chapter 1 when Zechariah is burning incense before the Lord. And we read that the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the altar of incense. And of course, we know that that's when an angel appeared to Zechariah, but nobody knew that it was going to be a special day like that. So presumably this was the routine, the ritual, that the priest would go in to burn incense and the people would stand outside praying as the priest went in to burn incense. So there was this correlation that the people understood between the hour of incense and the hour of prayer. And we read that there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. So Zechariah is in there burning incense while the people outside are praying. And Zechariah himself apparently also is praying because the angel stands before him and says, Your prayer has been heard. So incense is constantly and It's actually exclusively related to prayer everywhere in the Scripture that we may infer symbolism. Thus, it's best to understand this altar of incense in the ancient tabernacle the same way. Which teaches us that part of what God wants from His people by way of worship is prayer. That we are to pray. Now let us know a couple of important things before drawing out some application for our lives. First, though the altar was in the holy place, its function was related to the most holy place. So again, let's just review briefly so we don't miss this. There's this rectangular tent type structure with three sections. The easternmost section is the outer court. The middle section is the holy place and the westernmost section is the most holy place and the altar of incense is in the westernmost side is on the westernmost side of the middle section the holy place just before you go into the most holy place 
But though the altar was in the holy place, in the middle section, its function was related to the most holy place, which was the westernmost section. This is why the author of Hebrews can say these two seemingly contradictory things in the same paragraph in Hebrews 9. You can turn there if you like to follow along closely as I read. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now, what I just read indicates that the altar of incense was actually part of the furniture of the most holy place. That westernmost section, which contradicts what I just told you, right? Now listen. Hebrews 9 goes on to say, in verse 6, the priests go regularly into the first section, that is the holy place, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, that is the most holy place, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So do you see the apparent contradiction? How could the priest go into the most holy place only once per year if it is that the altar of incense was in the most holy place and God required that incense be burned on the altar of incense twice daily. The best way to understand this apparent discrepancy from my perspective is to interpret this in conjunction with, with Hebrews 9 in conjunction with Exodus 30 and understand that the altar of incense was physically just outside the most holy place, right by the entrance to the most holy place. So it was physically in the holy place, but its function pertained to the most holy place, as opposed to belonging properly in the holy place, in which it was actually physically to be found. And so it belonged most properly to the most holy place. And so when the author of Hebrews comes so many years later to describe these things theologically and explain their significance, he includes the altar of incense as something in the most holy place, something belonging to the most holy place. As the priest burned incense on the altar of incense, in the most holy place, but, or pardon me, in the holy place, but right by the curtain to the most holy place, 
No doubt the aroma would waft into the most holy place, into the very presence of God, where it would be a sweet and pleasing aroma to Him. And that was its very purpose. It was located as close as you could possibly get daily to God's presence with the intention that the aroma from it would go into God's presence. That was the point. And so it was positioned as close as you could possibly get to God's special presence without actually being in the most holy place, which would render it inaccessible except once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so it's in the holy place, but its function pertains more properly to the most holy place. And so the author of Hebrews interprets it as an item belonging to the most holy place. It was placed outside the most holy place to indicate the limited access that God's people had during that period of types and shadows when they lived under the Old Covenant. In contrast to the period we live in now in which Christ has become the fulfillment of these types and shadows. In fact, that's exactly how the author of Hebrews interprets the meaning of the curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. In the very next verse, Hebrews 9 and verse 8 says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. So God wants His people to pray. And He wants to smell the aroma of the incense of their prayers, so to speak. But He also wants it to be clear that they are not entitled to approach Him familiarly and on their own terms with unlimited access under the Old Covenant. There is a curtain between they and He. That's the first thing I want to point out before drawing some application. Second, notice that atonement is a prerequisite for prayer. If there was no blood from the bronze altar, there could be no legitimate offering of incense at the altar of incense. Because this altar of incense had to be consecrated, sanctified, atoned for with blood from the bronze altar. The high priest was to take blood from the bronze altar once a year and apply it to the altar of incense. If he did not do that, there could be no legitimate offering at the altar of incense. And so, atonement is a prerequisite to prayer. Without the blood of a substitute, you can't expect that your prayers will be heard and accepted as legitimate by God. The bronze altar legitimizes the altar of incense. Let us now draw out some implications and applications. First, though God wants us to pray, we need to recognize that our prayers 
themselves are imperfect and blemished as flowing from our own imperfect and blemished hearts and therefore must be atoned for. We cannot expect God to hear and to accept our prayers without atonement having first been made. If there is no blood from the bronze altar, we may not light any incense. God quarrels regularly with His old covenant people for praying to Him as if they were loyal, faithful worshipers when they were not repentant and contrite and did not trust in Him to pardon their sin. It's a theme of the prophets. I could cite a number of different passages, but let me just cite one from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. What's necessary then? The very next words, listen. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. You see? Until there is atonement, until there is purification, there may be no incense. We need atonement before our prayers will be heard and accepted on high. And thank God we have such atonement. Of course, the sacrifice is offered on the bronze altar. This is one of the easiest things to interpret in the Old Covenant. The animal sacrifices slain as substitutes for the people, bearing the punishment that they deserve for their sins. What do they represent? Christ Jesus on the cross, laying down His life for us. The animals offered on the bronze altar prefigured the atonement that Christ Jesus made for us. Taking His blood then, and applying it to us and to our prayers. We and our prayers are now acceptable in God's sight. And He will hear them for Christ's sake. And this leads us to our second point of application. We no longer have to pray from outside the most holy place. We no longer have to offer up our incense on the outside of the curtain. When Jesus died, the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom as if God's hands reached down and tore it himself. This is unnecessary anymore. This symbolized that we all, all of God's people, have the access that was previously restricted to high priests and high priests alone. All of God's people have the access of high priests in and through Christ Jesus. The most common and ordinary saint 
is now welcome to come into God's presence as only Aaron and his sons did in ancient times. The most common and ordinary saint may come right into the very presence of God. And as pertains to our study tonight, to present there our prayers and our petitions to Him. Because Jesus died the death that we deserve to die and lived a perfect and sinless life that we ought to have lived but didn't. Because He gives us His righteousness. Because His blood has made atonement for our sins. Because of what happened on the bronze altar, so to speak. Because Jesus died on the cross. And the great exchange, as Martin Luther called it, occurred. We gave Christ Jesus our sin. And He bore the wrath that was due it. He gave us His righteousness. Blood was taken from that sacrifice and was applied to us and to our prayers to the altar of incense. As blood was taken from the bronze altar long ago and applied to the altar of incense. Symbolically, that is what has happened. So that we may now legitimately offer up our prayer to God. And that in His very presence instead of outside the curtain. Because there is now no curtain hanging between God's people and His very presence. We have total unfettered access to God. Have you ever felt unwanted by God? And ashamed, therefore, and nervous to come into His presence and to pray. Maybe you've sinned badly and you are ashamed and nervous to come into His presence and confess it and ask Him to forgive you. Maybe you need something but you feel like you're a bad person and you don't deserve it and why would God listen to you anyway? For whatever reason, have you ever just felt unwanted like you can't come into God's presence? And there... Pray to Him. Listen to Hebrews 4.16, which works out the implication of this symbolism and its application to our lives now that Jesus has completed His atoning work on our behalf. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There is no curtain keeping you up. Jesus did away with it. The lamb has been burned on the bronze altar. So now, fire up the altar of incense. And that, in the most holy place. Let us be a prayerful people. Praying and praising Him without ceasing, glorying in His perfect love.